Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with the verdict in one of the most important trials in recent American history. A verdict sealing the fate of three white Georgia men who chased down a black man in their pickup trucks, cornered him, and murdered him in what has been described as a modern-day lynching. And they nearly got away with it. But today, they had to stand up in that courtroom and listen as the guilty verdicts rained down. Count one, malice murder. We, the jury, find the defendant, Travis McMichael, guilty. Count two, felony murder. We, the jury, find the defendant, Greg McMichael, guilty. Count three, felony murder. We, the jury, find the defendant, William R. Bryan, guilty. Travis McMichael, the man who shot Ahmaud Arbery, was found guilty on all nine counts, including malice murder and felony murder. His father, Gregory McMichael, was found not guilty of malice murder, but guilty of all other counts he faced, including felony murder. While their neighbor, William Bryan, who filmed the fatal encounter with Arbery, was found guilty of three counts of felony murder and other charges. All of them now face up to life in prison, and they still face federal hate crime charges, too. The jubilance from inside the courtroom to outside the courthouse in Brunswick, Georgia and beyond. It meant something for Arbery's mom, a moment of peace. I never thought this day would come, but God is good. Yes, he is. And I just want to tell everybody, thank you. Thank you for those who marched those who, who prayed, most of all, the, the ones who prayed. Yes, Lord. Yes. Thank you, God. Yes, Lord. Thank you. And now, now, Quez, which I, which you know him as Ahmad, I know him as Quez. Yes. He will now rest in peace. Yes. Amen. For many others, it was a rare moment of justice. This was a complete victory for the prosecution, full stop. Then in 2021, in the state with historically the second highest number of documented lynchings in this country, second only to Mississippi. It turns out you cannot chase someone just for being a black man jogging down the street. You cannot lynch a black man in broad daylight in 21st century America and just expect to walk free. Instead, a nearly all-white jury sent a powerful rebuke of anti-black terrorism, a repudiation of a Georgia law steeped in racism and used for decades as a justification for lynching black people. But as much as this was an open and shut case, it was pins and needles for those advocating for Arbery and for justice. The defense argued Arbery was the one to blame, scorned his appearance, pushed to bar black pastors from the courtroom, using race far more than the prosecution did, while suppressing evidence of their client's racism. And we need to remember that this case almost didn't happen at all. Remember, a previous prosecutor declined to even arrest the McMichaels, calling the shooting perfectly legal, which is all to say that today is indeed a victory, a partial victory, partial since Aubrey's family will still have to have Thanksgiving tomorrow without him. It was also a fight 
Because even with a case like this, with video of the actual murder for all the world to see, it was still a question of which way the jury would go. And that perhaps says more about America's criminal justice system than seeing these three men behind bars. Joining me now is Ellie Mistal, justice correspondent for The Nation, Katie Fang, trial attorney and MSNBC legal analyst, and Charles Coleman Jr., civil rights attorney and former prosecutor, as well as Jelani Cobb, staff writer for The New Yorker. I just want to go through and do a very quick round robin of whether this verdict was what you expected. I'll start with you, Ellie. Yes, it's what I expected, because as you said, um, it is illegal to lynch a black man in this country as long as you catch it on video. As long as you catch it on video and the dumb defendants leak that video thinking that it's going to help them and you go through one, not one, but two prosecutors and you get an all white jury, but a judge who isn't as biased as some of the judges we've seen in the recent past. Yes, it is illegal to lynch a black person in that particular set of circumstances. And this was the result I expected. I, I will put, I never, almost never disagree with you, Ellie, but we do not have an anti-lynching law in this country. So in terms of federal law, we do not have an anti-lynching law. It actually isn't federally illegal to lynch a black man in America still. Um, but you're, you're right, obviously, on the way that this case turned out on the law. Katie Fang, you've been covering this case with us intrepidly. Uh, you and Paul Butler were our, our legal dream team on this. Was this the result you expected? It was, but I don't think it was 100% because it was a rule of law victory. Um, the history to get here was too tortured to say that this was truly justice in its purest of senses. And I think it was a combination of luck and a combination of courage from those 12 jurors. But yes, I predicted this because it's exactly what the evidence supported and the law supported in the state of Georgia. Charles Coleman, Jr., thank you for being here. You're a civil rights attorney. You're a former prosecutor. Was this verdict a surprise to you or what you would have expected? Well, Joy, as a prosecutor, I've learned that you do not take you don't take any verdict for granted. And so while I did hope and believe that this is what the outcome should have been, as I watched the case unfold, I began to get tighter and tighter in terms of my anxiety around the case because the prosecution did everything that they could to have gotten the verdict that they did. So yes, this is what it should have been. This is what I expected. But again, I don't take anything for granted. And, and uh, I'm going to load your question up, Jelani, my friend. I'm sorry. I'm not going to give you the easy question here. Uh, I'm going to play for you. This is the way that police treated Travis McMichael on the day of the shooting itself. This is the Glynn County Police Department encountering Travis McMichael right after the shooting. Take a look. That's okay. Do you have any other weapons or anything on you? Just that. Okay. If he would have stopped, this is what I know. That's fine. That's fine. Like I said, just take a breath. You're... You got your ID and all that? Yes, no, no, no. Don't get, don't get blood all over yourself. It's, yeah, I, mean, I, I get that you're answer. You need to move around. Do what you need to do, man. That's, I, I can only imagine. The McMichaels have a history with law enforcement, Jelani. One of them is a former police officer. Um, they are obviously friendly with law enforcement. The prosecutor who initially saw this case, the prosecutors initially saw this case, threw it out, dismissed it, wrote a letter saying there was no crime here. So this almost didn't become a case at all. So what does it mean? Give us the big picture of what it means that it actually became a case and that these men were actually convicted. What does it mean historically? I don't think that it means that much, quite frankly. You know, uh, I can't say that this was the verdict I expected. Uh, we've become you know, so uh, numb 
to judicial outrages that you, we can't be certain that this is how this would turn out. Uh, I will say that, you know, when we look at the reason that I, I say that it doesn't have that much significance is that when we look at what is necessary, it wasn't simply, to Eli's point, it wasn't simply that there was video of what was essentially a game hunt as they tracked him through this suburb. Uh, it wasn't simply that they cycled through uh Four, the fourth prosecutor, actually, who handled the case, uh, in, including a Georgia Bureau of Investigation examination, uh, re-examination of the evidence, uh, and a Department of Justice examination. It wasn't simply that, but it also, in addition to those things, required that people get into the streets and stay in the streets for well over a year to ensure that nothing would go awry. Uh, and so when we talk about the, ju the judicial system working, you know, as President Biden said in the aftermath of the Rittenhouse uh, verdict, uh, you know, the fact is, we if you have to have staged months long protests to even have the question of charges being brought, addressed, then that's evidence that the judicial system does not, in fact, work. No, I, I can't. You can't argue with that. Impossible to argue that. Right. I mean, and, it, and, and, and the other thing is, had, had they still been police? They would have got away with it. Uh, that's the other thing, too, is they only didn't get away with it because they're not currently police. Uh, l let's go to what also had to be argued. And I'll go back to you on this, Ellie. It was necessary. And I think actually wise. And, you know, we talked about this when Katie was on um, one of the shows, I think a couple of days ago. <laughs> I actually thought it was wise that Linda Donikowski did not argue race. She's facing 11 white jurors and one black juror. If you if she had tried to argue race overtly, she would risk losing one of those jurors who would then maybe take it personal and maybe take it personal in the way she didn't in the prosecution didn't want. So she didn't do that. But this is what she did argue. Let's play what she did argue. This is Linda Donikowski um, arguing what she did, which is the right to liberty in America. Guess what? We're citizens of the United States, right? We live here. We have personal liberty because this is a free country. Other people can't go up and stop us, and hold us, and detain us, okay? They have to actually have seen us commit that crime in order to effectuate a citizen's arrest. So you go around and you start stopping people, you're doing that in violation of their personal liberty. That's what actually worked, Ellie. Look, the judge at the beginning of the case said that the, he saw evidence of racial bias in the jury selection, but the judge declined to do anything about it. So going into that courtroom, you have to meet the jury where it is. You have to know what you're up against. And here, the prosecutor knew what they knew what she was up against and kind of adjusted accordingly. In other cases that we have really seen, where that where the bias in the system has been also very obvious, I felt prosecutors didn't go into that courtroom knowing what to expect and knowing what they were, were what they were up against in that moment. This prosecutor did, and it's one of the reasons why why she was able to get a conviction. But I just want to add this. It's gross and disgusting that in this day and age, because of the predominantly white jury, you couldn't actually argue. It was smart to not argue what their motive was right. for killing this man. Right. She yeah. basically had to can, give can away add, add motive some, in this case. Go ahead. Can I add something to that really quickly? Yeah. This is not the first time that we've seen this. If you recall that horrific outrage in Charleston, where nine people were murdered in the basement of the Emmanuel AME Church, the rhetoric around that was consistently that this was the murder of nine Christians mm -hmm. in the midst of prayer. And that was what had to be how, the, how it had to be framed. 
in order to uh, to make it legible for people. Not that this was an act that recalled the worst racial horrors of South Carolina history, et cetera, et cetera, that this was an offense against Christians. Yeah. So prosecutors always have to pretend like these people are Iago, right? Like they're always motiveless, motiveless malevolence, as opposed to actually arguing what their racially biased motives are. And that is sad. It's a good strategy, but it is sad. And I mean, and, and, and in the end, um, Katie, the, the prosecutor came out and she gave a statement saying this was based on facts. It was based on, you know, you can't just come up and stop and hold people like she she's really reinforced that argument. But the, the sad part of it is she probably couldn't have gotten away with arguing the real deal here, which is that this was a lynching. She couldn't argue that. But what's important is that 30 se- 36 second video that was the linchpin of this case for the prosecution. You know, we have this thing called the golden rule, Joy, where you are not allowed as a prosecutor to ask the jurors to put themselves in the shoes of the victim. You're not allowed to do that, right? Just like the defense is not allowed to ask the jurors to put themselves in the shoes of the defendants. But that's kind of what you did by playing that video. And that's exactly what the prosecutor did when she didn't focus on race. Because she wanted those jurors to actually witness the video and picture themselves jogging down the street. She wanted to make sure it was a race-neutral argument so that those jurors could envision themselves, white or black, Hispanic, Asian, jogging down the street, having an illegal detention, and then an execution in the middle of a suburb. And that was a really smart move by the prosecution. In the absence of that video, like Ellie said, that was leaked because he thought it was going to be a smart thing to do. I mean, think about this. Roddy Bryan has to be ruining the day he did not successfully cover himself. That's right. From the McMichaels. Because yep. you and I saw from that jury verdict, he didn't get the malice murder, right? But he certainly got that felony. He got everything else. He participated and, in that. And no, to quote no, Linda no. Donikowski, everybody gets a Super Bowl ring. Really quickly, let's just let That's note right. that President Biden issued a statement um, saying uh, Ahmad Arbery's killing witnessed by the world on video is a devastating reminder of how far we have to go in the fight for racial justice. Uh, Vice President Kamala Harris issued a statement saying the defense counsel chose to set a tone that cast the attendance of ministers at the trial's intimidation and dehumanized a young black man with racist tropes. The jury arrived at its verdict despite these tactics. Stacey Abrams issued a statement um, hailing the jury for seeing the evidence before for their very eyes. Uh, both United States senators from Georgia, who are both Democrats, thanks to black voters, um, particularly black women voters and voters of color, John Ossoff saying there was nearly impunity for this murder and further investigation is necessary to determine how and why officials are fish- initially refused to pursue the case. And Senator Raphael Warnock, who's also the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, said true justice looks like a black man not having to worry about being harmed or killed while on a jog, while sleeping in his bed, while living what should be a very long life. Um, and I'll ask you, Charles Coleman, sort of the same question I asked Jelani Cobb. I- is there a bigger meaning to this in the criminal justice system? Does this change anything in terms of, of the justice system itself? It doesn't, Joy. And I think that the collective sense of anxiety that so many of us had before this verdict was read is demonstrative of that. Until this becomes the expectation and not the exception, it shows us how much more work we have to actually do. I want to be clear about something. We have conflated the concept of justice with accountability. What we saw today was not justice. Unfortunately, justice is out of reach because Ahmaud Arbery will not be here tomorrow to eat Thanksgiving yeah. dinner with his family. What yeah. we saw today was was our system hold three people accountable. And while it is a positive start, it is far, far, far away from justice. And I think we need to make sure that we keep our eyes on the ball in, in terms of understanding the difference there. 
Yeah. And the fact that they felt free to do this and tape it and think that they thought that they could walk away and do it. That is the problem with this country right now. Thank you, Ellen Mistal, Katie Fang, Charles Coleman Jr., Jelani Cobb. Thank you all very much. Up next on The Readout, the right's new rock star is an 18-year-old who shot and killed two people and injured a third and was acquitted for it. And the shooting and the killing part is exactly why they like him. Just the latest example of the right's seriously misguided values. Plus, President Biden moves to address inflation as new data shows the economy gaining major strength after almost two years of COVID. Plus, my conversation with a tribal chairman and a Native American journalist about the misinformation that is still being taught about the first Thanksgiving. And tonight's absolute worst. Imagine spending 43 years behind bars for a crime you didn't commit. And what that tells us about our broken justice system. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Republicans continue to celebrate Kyle Rittenhouse and his acquittal last Friday. Donald Trump is now bragging that Rittenhouse traveled to Palm Beach to visit him at Mar-a-Lago after he was found not guilty, calling him a Trump fan. They can be seen smiling and giving the thumbs up in a photo op posted by professional troll Donald Jr., who called Rittenhouse the greatest of all time. They think that fawning over Rittenhouse is a clever new way to own the libs. Never mind that he killed two people and badly injured a third man. Republicans are competing for his affection, like contestants on The Bachelor trying to get a rose. Even jockeying to be the first to hire him as a congressional intern, a job that he said in an interview with journalist Ashley Banfield that he does not want. It's not just gross and unseemly. It's also an an insult to the dead men and their families who are are grieving this Thanksgiving and this holiday season. Justin Despicable was author turned professional troll J.D. Vance, the Republican candidate for Senate in Ohio, who said yesterday that Rittenhouse embodies manly virtues, which he says our youth should embrace. This 17-year-old boy saw no one protecting the businesses, the people in his community, so he went down there and did it. And instead of rewarding it, instead of saying, you know, isn't it good that a 17-year-old kid who was raised by a single mother made good decisions and decided to be a positive force in his community, they slandered and lied about him. They treated basic manly virtue as white supremacy. And I think you're exactly right. It's not just about Kyle Rittenhouse. It's about what kind of young men do we want to raise in our communities? We want to promote the types of virtues that exist in Kyle Rittenhouse. Ooh, last night. In that Banfield interview, Rittenhouse tried to address questions that still linger over a January photograph showing him with members of the right-wing hate group, the Proud Boys, while flashing a white power hand sign. Here's his explanation. Why have you associated with members of groups like the Proud Boys 
why have you used hand signs that are commonly associated with white supremacy? That's a good question. I didn't know that the OK hand sign was a symbol for white supremacy, just as I didn't know that those people in the bar were Proud Boys. They were set up by my former attorney who was fired because of that, for putting me in situations like that with people I don't agree with. By the by, the legal team he fired also included Lynn Wood, the pro-Trump attorney and conspiracy theorist, whom Rittenhouse called insane for his belief in QAnon and likening himself to God. With me now, Dean Obadala, host of The Dean Obadala Show on SiriusXM and, and an MSNBC Daily columnist, and Tom Nichols, contributing writer for The Atlantic. And Tom, I have to start with you on this, because this new chic of sort of wrapping, the right wrapping their arms around Kyle Rittenhouse as what J.D. Vance calls the epitome of manly values. I mean, this is a 17-year-old whose mom drove him to a city he doesn't live in. He wasn't being a positive force in his community. That's not his community. It's a different state. It's not his community. These are not businesses that he knew, that he frequented, the person who owned the business didn't even know him. He killed two people. And I have to think that if this was my son, I'd be thinking he must be dealing with trauma. There must be something. I didn't see it in the interview. It was a a, a sort of blank performance, but I don't know if that was coaching or what. But what do you make of the fact that people are taking this 18-year-old and turning him into the ultimate example of manliness for Republicans? The saddest thing in all of this is that uh, the, the life they're ruining, in addition to the people who died and were injured, is going to be Kyle Rittenhouse's life. I mean, um, you know, taking a, a kid like this and deciding to make a hero out of him isn't going to end well. Um, when, where J.D. Vance is concerned, let's just get this out of the way, that J.D. Vance has become functionally um, a troll running for uh, Senate, that, that Vance is trying to out uh, be more outrageous than Josh Mandel um, he's trying to keep his donors happy. It, that's that that in itself is a pretty sad story to watch, and it's um, it's just pathetic. Uh, but to but to take this um, eighteen year old you know, who who now has two deaths to live with for the rest of his life, uh, and to treat him like a celebrity is part of what the right is doing. Where anything that aggravates people on the left is a virtue. That's really what it's about. It you know it's the lib owning impulse. And it's um, it's almost this kind of oppositional defiance disorder that anything that that appalls ordinary human beings is something they will embrace because they take that as a sign that they're right. And of course, that there's no end to that. At some point that ends up in just more misery and mayhem and violence. uh, Because there are a lot of things that appall ordinary human beings. And if you embrace that, as a political platform, there, there's simply no bottom. You know, there, there's a thing that's happening, and, and I don't know the ideology of this judge in Charlottesville, but the judge yeah. in Charlottesville praised the open white nationalists for how wonderfully they did in representing themselves and for being so wonderful in the courtroom and having such a civil trial. These people, like, danced when one of the victims talked about the, the, the pain that they felt at being brutalized. They talk, you know, this is about the death of a young woman. These mm-hmm. people sort of laughed at her. I mean, and the judge was praising that. Like, there's something happening in our society, Dean, where the right has, part, the, this part of the right has decided that violence, killing, there's no thou shalt not kill. These are their new values. Pure, unadulterated violence. 
That judge, Judge Moon, by the way, in 2010, struck down the ACA saying the mandate was unconstitutional. So it gives you an idea a little bit about his politics and how he did it. I will say other things he did. He did stop Richard Spencer a few times during opening statements, spewing hate. But getting back to the big point, you know, I sort of agree with Tom, but there's something I disagree with. I don't think they're just doing this to troll us, Tom. I think they're embracing violence as part of the arsenal of weapons they are prepared to use against Democrats going forward. That's the reality. This is not, oh, you know, Democrats don't like people getting killed in the streets, so we're going to troll them. I think it's deeper than that. You have in the same week last week, over 200 Republicans defending Paul Gozar by refusing to condemn him when he put out this fantasy snuff video where he literally kills AOC in it. Over 200, like, don't got a problem. Two of them have a problem. Trump puts out a statement afterwards, I stand with Paul Gozar. You got J.D. Vance, that kind of garbage going on. You have 55% of GOP voters in a July poll in CBS saying January 6th was not an act of terrorism, it was an act defending freedom. We have a GOP that is not just authoritarian, but Joy, we've talked about this. Authoritarian plus violence equals fascism. That's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a fact. So I don't think they're just trolling us. I wouldn't be surprised at the next RNC. They have Kyle Rittenhouse come out and reenact the shooting with the big cheers of the audience type of thing. But I think it's deeper. I think it's an embrace of violence and it's a warning call for all Americans. You don't want violence. The GOP is what they're doing. They're telling us what they're doing right in front of us. And, you know, and Tom, I'll come back to you on this because they're well, we're, we're, we're going to have you guys back in the next segment. But I have to say that there's been a celebration of violence as a part of American culture. You know, whether it was the idea of sort of the Western, the Wild West kind of violence, which wasn't even the way the Wild West really was, or the kind of celebration and sort of luxuriating in violence that for a long time allowed men to believe, white men to believe that they could do what those men did to Ahmaud Arbery. That, that has to be acculturated in you to believe that you are free to use violence for whatever reason, to get what you want, including for politics. And that is what I worry about, too, is that they're acculturating even a teenager into violence for political purposes. And it is pretty scary. But we're going to uh, have Dean and Tom stick around with us because up next, another big batch of good economic news ahead of Thanksgiving as weekly jobless claims fell to their lowest level in more than 50 years. So why are so many Americans convinced that our economy is in trouble? We will discuss. Stay with us. We're back at 716. The administration says it sees a silver lining in the dark cloud of our economy, but most people are finding that glimmer a bit hard to spot. That was from September of 1982, when America was stuck in a deep recession. President Ronald Reagan, who was elected vowing to cut inflation and boost the economy, watched unemployment rise and his poll numbers sink. Two months later, during the midterm elections, that terrible economy cost Reagan 26 seats in the House. How did Reagan get reelected only two years later in one of the biggest landslides in American history? If you listen to NBC's John Chancellor on the night of the 1982 midterms, he would have heard that while things were bad, the public still wanted to give Reagan a shot. With unemployment at its highest in 42 years, with bankruptcy so high, with the recession not going away, that you would have thought that the voters would have risen up and said, enough of this. The story of this election is that the bad economic conditions, which are really severe, did not produce the political effect you would have thought they would have, these conditions would have produced. 
It was there that Ronald Reagan, dubbed the great communicator, saw an opportunity and launched an aggressive marketing campaign that would trigger his reversal of fortune best embodied by this 1984 campaign ad. It's morning again in America. Today, more men and women will go to work than ever before in our country's history. With interest rates at about half the record highs of 1980, nearly 2,000 families today will buy new homes, more than at any time in the past four years. President Joe Biden inherited a crumbling economy and raging global pandemic from perhaps the worst president in American history, Donald Trump. This time last year, 21 million Americans were making unemployment insurance claims. Last week, that number was 2.4 million. This morning, the Labor Department announced that new unemployment claims were the lowest in more than 50 years. Consumer enthusiasm and spending is up. The supply chains are becoming unclogged. And yesterday, Biden released 50 million barrels of crude from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which should lower gas prices in a few weeks. But despite all of that, 70 percent of Americans believe the economy stinks. It sounds like President Biden might need to take a page from Ronald Reagan and learn how to sell, sell, sell. Back with me are Dean Obadala and Tom Nichols. And before we jump into this conversation, Tom, I know you had something that you wanted to add to our last segment where we were talking about political violence. I'll let you do that first, and then we'll talk about this economy stuff. Just quickly, I wanted to agree with Dean. I don't think this is just simple trolling by the Republicans. These are people that are trying to create a culture of menace that's meant to silence their opponents with fear. This is what McCarthyism would look like in a party that finally at long last had no decency. I, I, I cannot disagree with you. But let's talk about this, because this is all happening at a time when there's like a normal political conversation going on among Democrats about what to do about the economy. Because Joe Biden, who is not a Ronald Reagan, he's not a seller, right? But he is like a normal guy. So that when he talks, he sounds like a normal person. So he could, in theory, get out there and say, look, I get that it's taken a long time to get your couch you ordered, but the economy is really good. Tom, I'll stay with you on this. A, do you think it would matter in an environment where the other party has gone full political violence and fascist? Would it even matter at this point if Biden tried to do the normal political thing of selling the economy? Yeah, I think it might. But there's a problem in the Democratic Party where if, if there's a if people say, look, but I'm unemployed or I'm suffering or my family is running into trouble, Democrats by their nature say, OK, then then things aren't good. Right. Um, whereas, you know, the Republicans and Reagan in particular had a real talent for saying, I understand that. And but, you know, things are improving. Things are better. And I think Democrats almost feel guilty about doing that. When they know that there are people, you know, suffering, um, you know, it, it, it feels wrong to them. The Republicans, Reagan in particular, could say unemployment is X percent. Someone would say, I don't but I don't have a job. Democrats say, you're right. Things are bad. Reagan <laughs> would say, I understand, but you're going to have a job soon. And that's the okay. difference. And I think especially with a Republican Party that has no optimism left, that has no positive message left, that Biden needs to step forward and to be that happy warrior, because that's who Joe Biden used to be. And, and mm -hmm. the office clearly weighs on him. But he could he could make that that case, I think. And here's the thing, Dean. I think that Tom is right. Democrats are sort of weighed down by their empathy, where they're like, if one person is down, they go, oh, my God, you're right. Everything is terrible. We're just and then they go down and they start to do the beans. And they're like, we're going to fix these beans and we're going to make it work. Other than Bill Clinton, who if he was in the same situation, would be out there going, you know, I know things seem bad right now, but let me play this saxophone. You know, and then they would be like, oh, you know, and everybody would be distracted. Democrats in general don't have that talent. So. What, what do you think that they are going to be able to do about it now so that they don't get shellacked? Because, by the way, this isn't me as a partisan. If they go down 
democracy goes down with them. Yeah, I agree. By the way, that Reagan commercial was the whitest commercial I've seen in a long time. It was unbelievable. <laughs> but that's why that it worked. Exactly. And all different shades of white people. And that's what he was going for. Let's be blunt. Look, Joe Biden and the Democrats. Biden, you've got the Biden economic miracle. Go out there and talk about it. Unemployment in Trump's last full month in office, 6.7%. Today, 4.6%. Black unemployment down. Hispanic unemployment down. Stock market, all-time highs. Remember when Trump would get a high? He would tweet about it. There'd be press everywhere. Biden doesn't want to talk about it. They don't want to brag. Enjoy. It's about messaging. You get two Democrats on TV, you get three opinions. Democrats, you got to work on your messaging. you got to work with someone in Hollywood. And you have to understand this. The media is not going to tell your story because you have accomplishments. The media is not your friend. It's not your enemy either. It's a business vehicle. You've got to come up with messages that work in a vehicle, in a vessel that's about getting ratings and revenue. It's not a secret what I'm saying. This is the truth. So Democrats, get yourself together. you got buddies in Hollywood. Come up with messages. Come up with commercials. Sell it and be proud and stop feeling bad about yourselves for a change. You're doing something great here. And the thing is also, I think what, De- what Republicans are really good at, Tom, is, is, is sort of allocating a villain and saying, OK, maybe the economy looks bad, but the real villain is communism. The real villain is the Russians. The real, vi- you know, back when they were anti, now they're really pro-Russian. It's a whole weird thing. But the real vi- vision is them. It's something out there. It's the border. It's the brown people. It's the Muslims. It's somebody. Democrats have another party that they're facing that is tearing democracy apart. But they don't want to say that. You have Louis DeJoy sitting there destroying the Postal Service, but they don't want to say that. I, I don't know. Your, your thoughts. <laughs> one, of, one of the great triumphs of the Republican Party, and I say this as a former Republican, is that we got Democrats to internalize our criticisms of the Democratic oh, yeah. Party. Yeah. That that mm-hmm. by telling them that, you know, if you criticize Louis DeJoy, you're, oh, you're, you know, you're, you're, uh, taking out, you know, you're, you're dumping on the United States of America. You yeah. know, uh, if you don't, if, if one person is suffering, you're not living up to the promise of your party. Yeah. And, and I think Republicans really got inside the heads of they Democrats did. about this. They, they really need to let go of that. And, and it's time for them to step up because it's not about party. It's about them being the only party left that cares about democracy. Get it together. Dean Obadala, Tom Nichols, thank you very much. Have a great Thanksgiving. Thanks. Still ahead. I recently talked with a member of the Halo, of the Halawa Saponi tribe, Halawa Saponi tribe of North Carolina, and the chairman of the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe about how indigenous people really feel about Thanksgiving. It was a fascinating discussion, and we will bring that to you right after this quick break. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.
This year marks 400 years since English pilgrims and the Eastern Wampanoags allegedly sat down and broke bread. The meeting, now known as Thanksgiving, is an annual holiday celebrated by many Americans, but not all. Flip open any children's book about that day, and you'll read about the hard scrabble pilgrims who landed on mostly uninhabited land, and thanks to Native Americans festooned in feathers, they survived and celebrated that feat around wild turkey and corn. Except that's not how it happened. As the Washington Post recently noted, the Wampanoag, a name that means the people of the first light, have lived on these lands as far back as 10,000 years, far longer than any American. By the time they had met the pilgrims, their community had already been devastated by an epidemic brought to their shores by previous English settlers. So in 1620, when they watched Mayflower strangers invade their land, they thought they would try things differently. And by the spring of 1621, they made contact. In the fall of that year, the pilgrims, who struggled through a harsh winter and learned how to plant beans and squash, thanks to, the, thanks to the Wampanoag, celebrated the success of their first harvest. They didn't think to invite the people who helped save their lives. Bet you didn't know that, because they don't tell you that part in the textbooks. In fact, the Wampanoag showed up later, only after the pilgrims fired off their muskets. Naturally, the Wampanoag heard the gunfire and thought war was afoot. Realizing that wasn't the case, they wound up sitting down with the people who would become their colonizers. For many indigenous people, Thanksgiving is not a day to be celebrated, but rather a day to be mourned. Because while we gorge ourselves on turkey and stuffing, for Native people, that day represents the start of hundreds of years of genocide, colonization, disease, and forced indoctrination of children stolen from their parents and forced to abandon their language and their culture in government-run boarding schools. With me now is Dana Hedgepath, Washington Post reporter and member of the Halawa Saponi tribe of North Carolina, and Brian Whedon, chairman of the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe. Thank you both for being here. Really appreciate you. Um, I want to start with you, Dana. Thank you so much for being here this afternoon. And why did you write that piece? What prompted you to do it? There have been a lot of attempts, I think, over the years to sort of reimagine and sort of rediscover what Thanksgiving ought to be. What prompted you to write this piece? You know, it came about from a conversation with a very good editor at the Washington Post, uh, Linda Robinson, and we were chatting. She said, how do you celebrate Thanksgiving? I'm Native American. I'm from the Halawasa Pony Drive in North Carolina. And I sort of chuckled and said, you know, it's not, we don't celebrate the same way you do. Uh, Thanksgiving doesn't mean to Native Americans what it does to many others in the country. And so that got us thinking, what's the best way to tell that story? And the 400th anniversary brought about a great opportunity to do that. I was very fortunate to meet Chairman Whedon through introductions and to really listen to their side of the story that, as you said, is so often not shared. Yeah. And, you know, Chief Whedon, I think that's an excellent point, because I think there is an American tick of sort of looking at the arrival of Europeans here as just a triumph, right? A triumph of will, a triumph of the Mayflower and the Nina and the Pinta and the Santa Maria and sort of whitewash the fact that there were people here. And then to take those people and just make them, well, those were their friends and they gave them corn and then everybody did Thanksgiving. And to wipe out really what was a, a really tragic history, including for the Wampanoag of, you know, encountering European settlers getting wiped out by disease, maybe smallpox or whatever germs they were carrying, and then encountering them again, and then being colonized. How do the Wampanoag look at Thanksgiving, and, and what, what would you be doing on that day? 
Um, I think first and foremost, it's important to understand that the Wampanoag people have always been welcoming. Uh, one of the reasons why we didn't wipe out the English was because they brought their women and children. We never brought our women and children to fight into battle. So we thought that they had come in peace. Um, it's kind of, you know, ignorant bliss on our side, I guess. Um, and we were, you know, more welcoming and, you know, taught them how to grow their corn and their crops and to stay here. Um, we've always been welcoming people and we still are welcoming people. Um, it hasn't really worked to our advantage over the past 400 years. Um, we're now witnessing uh, another pandemic here um, in the nation with COVID. Um, you know, so all the diseases that come through, we're still having diseases and these problems still mm -hmm. today. Um, I would say that, you know, Thanksgiving is a day of mourning. Um, the fact that our tribe only owns half of 1% of our ancestral territory um, and 400 years later, you know, we're still waiting for our fair share from the federal government and the Commonwealth, I think is pretty unacceptable. Yeah, and you know, I was just looking at Dana Hedgepeth, you write about the division of land and taking what had been vast lands that the Wampanoag had, dividing it up into like 60 acre chunks and defying the culture um, of these great people who didn't divide land that way and, and tax it that way. How has what did you discover about how life has changed for for this tribe in the you know centuries since and how much of that culture remains? And I'll ask both of you that question, but I'll ask you as somebody who just finished doing this piece. Well, they are alive and strong, as, as the chairman said, very welcoming people. And as Frank James, who's a very well-known Wampanoag activist who made a very famous speech in the 1970s, and was dejected, in fact, from giving that speech publicly uh, at the time. But it, perhaps the best line from his speech was, befriending the pilgrims was perhaps our biggest mistake. Um, just if you think about that and let that resonate for a moment, it did open up a long, slow, painful process of genocide, uh, taking of lands, uh, taxation, ownership, things that were the antithesis of the very culture that American Indians and the Wampanoags especially prided themselves in. And, you know, Chief, and Chief Whedon, you know, you're young. I, I'm just looking at you're eight. You're only 28 years old. So you're, you know, a young man who's, who's growing up, you know, both in within your tribe and in your culture, but in this country. And I wonder, what do you say to people who just want to move on, who just want to do the tomahawk chop at an Atlanta Braves game, who are like, why are you making such a big deal out of that? Why can't we just do Thanksgiving the way we want to? Including some younger people who don't want to deal with this history and especially don't want to deal with anything like reparations. Um, I think it boils down to this nation. I mean, look at all the monuments and all these people that we, you know, classify as heroes and our founding fathers. When you actually look into the history of what these people did, you know, uh, President Lincoln was one of the ones who had one of the biggest massacres, um, you know, of Native Americans in his time. Um, and he wanted to bring the nation together. So he decided to make this a holiday. Um, you know, I think that the country and the nation has played their part. Um, and we don't do a good job at um, putting out the accurate information. It's very one sided. Um, and that's why we're here today to put our story out there so that we can bring awareness to this issue. Um, I think that it's ignorance on a lot of part. Um, but as young people, I believe that it's our generation that will make that change and start uniting our nation. Dana Hedgepeth, thank you for writing this very important piece. Hopefully everyone will read it. Um, Brian Whedon, Chief Brian Whedon, Chairman Brian Whedon, more accurately. Thank Chairman. you very much. Really appreciate you for being here. Thank you very much, sir. Thank Good time, you. Atash.
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And up next, you've heard the phrase justice delayed is justice denied. Well, yesterday, justice finally delivered after 43 years, and it put a big, bright spotlight on America's broken justice system. Tonight's Absolute Worst is next. out to be a much more positive week for the criminal justice system than last week with today's guilty verdicts for the men who murdered Ahmaud Arbery. There's also good news from Missouri, where Kevin Strickland has been exonerated after 43 years in prison. Strickland, a black man, was convicted of triple murder in 1979 by an all-white jury. Despite no physical evidence linking him to the crime scene, alibis, and an admitted killer who said Strickland wasn't there. But while it's good news that Strickland has been released from prison, he will never get those 43 years back. It's just one of many examples of the corruption and unfairness at the heart of our criminal justice system. Last week, two black men were exonerated for the murder of Malcolm X more than 55 years after his assassination. Our system is so messed up that Julius Jones was almost executed for a conviction that many people now believe was a miscarriage of justice. But it's not just the many, many wrongful convictions out there. It's the number of white men who seem to get away with crimes. And the disparity is glaring. As Kasim Rashid tweeted, 17-year-old white boy Kyle Rittenhouse was acquitted, claiming self-defense. But 17-year-old black girl, Crystal Kaiser, who killed the man she accused of raping and trafficking her, was convicted. As Rashid pointed out, the system isn't broken. It was built this way. Hmm. If only there was some critical theory that talked about race and criminal justice that could address this. Anywho, the Rittenhouse, Rittenhouse case was influenced by the judge, who seemed to take quite a liking to Mr. Rittenhouse. He wouldn't let prosecutors call the people Rittenhouse gunned down victims and even let him draw the names of the jurors who would be dismissed so that he would feel in control. Because that's a luxury that this young white man was afforded. It's one of many examples of outsized power that judges hold like the judge who decided last week to not send a convicted serial rapist who pleaded guilty to prison after praying about it. It's reminiscent of Brock Turner's 2016 sexual assault case where the judge gave him a light sentence because of the severe impact that jail would have on him. We know for sure that not all defendants are afforded prayer and concern for their well-being, with black men often getting longer sentences for the exact same federal crimes that white men commit. As I mentioned earlier, it says something about our system that it was a shock to many of us that Arbery's killers were convicted at all. After the Rittenhouse trial and the Zimmerman trial and so many other cases where we've seen, where we've been disappointed over and over again, justice in America seems to be much more likely for white Americans. And until that changes, our U.S. criminal justice, so-called criminal justice, justice system will remain the absolute worst. And that's tonight's readout. Happy Thanksgiving. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.